welcome back to the Prairie Pod. I can't believe it. We're already on episode six. Time is flying, Megan. It is. It is flying. Did you do that on purpose because we're talking about bees today? Oh, gosh. You know. <laughs> so you said, time's flying like a bee in the wild. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I had been that creative or that on the ball this morning, but I'm on my first cup of coffee. I'm really proud know? of you. And so. We're yeah, on the wing Give me here. a minute, okay? Okay. Well, there's a lot to buzz about in this episode. That's that's an old one. <laughs> it's an oldie but a goodie. An I'm totally goodie. keeping it. <laughs> so I know that we talked about bees during our last episode. Mm-hmm. Definitely, everybody, go check that out if you haven't heard it yet. We talked with fan favorite Jessica Peterson and Nicole Gurgits about their work doing the Minnesota Bee Survey. And because bees are so important, I mean, they're really, really important. We're devoting another podcast you just bet. to the bees. Because they're the knees. You know what I'm saying? These knees. These Can I these say <laughs> why this our talk today is so important? Sure. I mean, you know, we, we talk about how all these prairie critters or populations are crashing. And sometimes it feels overwhelming and like there's no, there's no hope. The stuff we're talking about today, I think, is, is, makes me think that some turning things around is feasible. There's a lot that we can do. Yeah. There's there's many things that are not in our control necessarily individually because it takes a collective of people working on these. But every choice you make does matter. And I feel like we're here with a very special guest today and we're going to talk about the landscape that we have in Minnesota. So we're going to talk about farming, farming for bees. She's going to tell us how to turn things around. Yeah. Yes. There's lots that we can do. We If we're going to get there to get this landscape back in balance, we're going to have to do it together. And so that's what I like about this podcast topic, that we're going to talk to Karen. Karen, do you want to introduce yourself? Because I feel weird that we're just talking about you. <laughs> right here. Do you want to say who you are? Thanks. My name is Karen Jokola. Um, do you want me to, uh, I'm, I work for the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation. Uh, I'm a pollinator conservation planner, and I'm a partner biologist for the Natural Resources Conservation Service, which is the NRCS. Um, I can explain more about the Xerces Society. Yeah, please do, because some people might not be familiar, and we partner with them all the time, and you guys are doing super fabulous work, and I feel like they're great partnerships. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, We're a nonprofit conservation organization um, that works to protect invertebrates and their habitat. So we're based out of Portland, Oregon, but we have people all over the country. Um, you might think of us kind of like the Audubon Society, but for invertebrates. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good analogy. I never really thought about you guys like that. Mm-hmm. I always think of you as a league of your own. Well, maybe that too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have the biggest pollinator conservation team um, in the world. Uh, <laughs> nice. Congratulations. <laughs> yep. Our pollinator team is like, a, we call it the Pollinator Conservation and Ag Biodiversity Program. Um, so what you might not know about the Xerces Society is that a lot of us are working hand-in-hand with farmers um, nice. around, around the world, but primarily in the United States. And that is um, really the bulk of my job. So as I said, I'm a partner biologist for the NRCS. The NRCS is the, the branch of the USDA that's responsible for helping farmers with conservation. And so my position is funded by a partnership between Xerces NRCS and uh, General Mills, and yeah, 
And um, I assume General Mills comes in because they make a very popular cereal with a B on it. <laughs> so they have a little best exactly. interest here. They're actually, they, <laughs> you may not um, know this, but they're quite interested in um, supporting regenerative agriculture, um, trying to get their oats producers to incorporate more uh, pollinator habitat. They're, they're very supportive of pollinator conservation. So Good. I'm doing That's a lot great. of interesting work. And um, yeah, so I help farmers individually with conservation planning. I do a lot of training for NRCS in Minnesota and Wisconsin too. Um, so I'll teach uh, NRCS staff on how to better assess pollinator habitat on farms and create habitat and better support monarchs, pollinators, beneficial insects of all kinds. I love it. So you're not busy. (laughs) (laughs) I have a few things to do. (laughs) Yeah, a few things to do. And we just did a seed mix clinic together earlier this year, which is always a special joy for me because I don't, like, I'm a talker. I know you guys know this. I'm a talker. So it's really nice when I get the opportunity to share a presentation with somebody else who's also a seed mix building nerd like myself, and we get to play off of each other. And I think we do a really nice job presenting (laughs) together. I'm probably biased because I'm one of the people presenting, but I really like working with you, Karen. I think you're great. Thanks, Megan. I'm really glad you're here. Oh, good. Mike, we like you, too. Want you to feel left out. Yeah, um, Karen, let's, let's just move on here. Um, <laughs> so, when we're, we're talking about pollinator conservation, uh, farming is a big, a big issue we talk about. Can you tell us why, and tell us more about why farming, uh, how it affects pollinators? Yeah. So, <laughs> starting off with a really big question. I know. So, um, so I'm not a historian, uh, but. Farming practices have really changed in the last 60, 70 years. And um, whereas we used to have a lot of biodiversity on the farm, now we're moving more and more towards really simplified landscapes where we have less crop diversity. Um, We're, through the advent of synthetic pesticides, we're able to crop more marginal areas, areas that may have um, never been in production before mm-hmm. because um, they were too, the, the soil wasn't um, fertile enough. Those are areas that used to be kind of supporting natural habitat and now they're in production. Right. There used to be like fence rows and set aside areas around the farm. So right. it had that habitat component mixed in yeah. and now as technology's changed and our equipment has changed and also the demands that are out there, like a lot has changed. <laughs> right. A lot has changed, not just in this country, but really globally. And um, so we're not seeing those natural areas on farms as much anymore. We're not um, thinking of natural areas on the farm as as beneficial. It's just sort of marginal. Whereas I think traditional farming practices tended to see the the value in -hmm. some of those natural areas as being a refuge for the pollinators that um, pollinate their crops or a refuge for beneficial insects that are serving as natural Mm -hmm. enemies for their their pest insects. So um, we just have a really different kind of farming landscape now where we have, um, we're only growing a few crops and... um, 
<laughs> and not much else, I guess. Right. right. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if a, a prior emphasis on hunting in that in the, in our farming culture. I mean, it's still there, of course, but uh, people were probably more dependent on it 50, 60 years ago. And so they wanted that habitat around their farms. Yeah, maybe. To support game. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, that was a fa- if that's been a factor. But. Yeah, the other thing that I just want to make sure our listeners know is that we have about 27 million acres of ag land in the state of Minnesota, which is just under half of our total acreage. It's not quite half. So when we're talking about this, like if we're going to accomplish our landscape goals, we've mm-hmm. really got to do this together. Like, and I don't think our goal is ever, oh, we, you know, we're just going to wipe these farms off of the, we've mentioned this in our holiday episode. That's not really the goal. The goal is how can we build balance back into this system? Because we know that we're seeing these crash of these insects and they're not only, they could be beneficial for our farms, but they're certainly beneficial for our lives. And I don't want to steal Karen's thunder, so I'm not going to say any more <laughs> about that. But <laughs> we're definitely, everything's all connected. I won't sing the song, Mike. Thank so you. yeah. you're welcome. Yeah. I, won't well, say it. I think that's a really important point because in Minnesota, we're really blessed to have a lot of public natural areas, which you've been talking about a lot on mm-hmm. the podcast. Um, but we can't keep thinking of like nature is over here and our farms are over there yep. uh, right. because we, <laughs> we need to integrate them more and create corridors for these, you know, a lot of our wildlife, including bees mm-hmm. um, and, and really partner with nature more in our farming systems. Right. And we all live here. So we have a vested interest in this. Like, I don't think I've ever talked to a farmer who's like, yeah, I'd love to have more dirty water for my family. Like that's not, that's not a thing that people say. So like they're, they want to figure out how that we can do better together. And so I think hopefully you're going to give us some tips that we can (laughs) farm better for bees here. So Describe, um, before we jump in to some changes that we can make with our farming practices, help us understand a little bit the differences between honeybees and native bees, or wild bees. Sometimes people call them wild bees. I call them native bees. Yeah. I think since we're talking about farming, the first thing I'll say is that um, honeybees are integral to our agriculture system as we know it now. So... Um, there are European social species, or at least that's where they originate from, but they're really a global species now that are integrated into all of our global agricultural systems. Um, but they're, they're somewhat like a, a livestock species. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really how they're regulated, right? <coughs> yep. As, yeah. li- as livestock. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas uh, our wild bees <laughs> or native bees... Um, there's a vast diversity of them. They um, are native to our prairies, our you know, all all ecosystems in Minnesota. Um, we've got what is it like 450 plus? Yep. And counting. <laughs> and counting. And counting. Um, in yeah. Minnesota alone, um, and these are bees that have a pretty different lifestyle than honeybees. They uh, they don't necessarily have a, a queen or a social caste system. They are doing a lot of work really independently. They're solitary for the most part. Mm-hmm. I mean, for vast majority of them are solitary. Um, and they're, they're visiting our crops. They're visiting our wild areas. Um, and they... Those are some of the, I guess those are some of the big differences. Um, they have a shorter life cycle, at least from the... Not a shorter life cycle, but the adult um, stage. You right. might only see for a couple weeks or 
um, maybe a month or two, but they don't, you don't see them from April through October like you do with honeybees. Each individual native bee species you might only see for a short period, and the rest of their life cycle is kind of hidden from us. Unless we're talking about bumblebees. Unless, yes, bumblebees are native bees. There are one kind of social bee. They have a pretty different life cycle than honeybees, too. Um, But, yeah, for the most part, our, our wild bees are doing a lot of services for us, but it's kind of like this rally, like tat tag team kind of there's some that are out for only flying for a couple weeks in the spring and there are some that are only flying for a couple weeks in the fall um and they're just kind of there's a phenology of them throughout the season and and there's so much we don't know about wild bees yeah still i mean i I would say we know there's still things we don't know about honeybees but we know a lot more because we're studying a single species a little bit Mm -hmm. more closely i said this at the beekeepers meeting where I said that um, honeybees are never wearing pants. <laughs> so they're just not dressed for Minnesota winter. The key difference between honeybees yeah, and our native They all just started cracking up laughing. They're like, actually, that's true. <laughs> I said, so we need to help them get through Minnesota winter. Probably, arguably, we need to help all of our wild bees by, you know, do, doing beneficial things for them, like providing habitat. But it brought down the house, and I was like, yeah, they're just not wearing pants. <laughs> Can I just add yeah. one more comment about yes. the honeybees? So mm-hmm. um, from a crop pollination perspective, a lot of people think that they need honeybees to get their crops pollinated. So if, you, if you're if you growing, if you have an orchard or um, blueberries, for example, a lot of people think that you need to bring in honeybees to get that crop pollinated. Mm-hmm. And, and depending on the landscape that you're situated in, that can be true Um, but there's a lot of research that shows that there's some synergy between Mm. wild bees and honeybees and when together they can actually wild bees can can actually influence um, crop pollination in a certain way so wild bees can get out to the crop earlier they can uh, because they are more hardy they can get out in wetter cooler conditions they'll forage earlier and later in the day they'll kind of force honeybees to move into different areas of the tree if it's an apple tree and so you can actually get better crop pollination if you're relying on honeybees and wild bees oh i like that interesting there's some definite synergy i like that word too it's the word of this podcast <laughs> like, I'll go with that theme. Yeah. Karen, can you can you t- help us uh, get an idea of how we can adjust farming practices to help bees, and maybe just even start. You can know, you can go into as much detail as you want here, but an easy first step that that most farmers could do to help bees. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is to. If you have some habitat on the farm, mm-hmm. to recognize that habitat and conserve it. Okay. Uh, a lot of people think that in order to save the bees or help the bees, I need to plant a wildflower meadow. Um, but there are a lot of habitat elements on a farm that may not be recognized as habitat. Um, so that could be riparian corridors. It could be... Um, just even like marginal areas, fallow mm-hmm. fields, even if they're not uh, rich in wildflowers, if it's undisturbed soil, that's valuable nesting habitat for wild bees. Um, so secondly, 
beyond recognizing existing habitat would be to reduce tillage. If you do nothing else for bees on your farm, reducing tillage mm. is really important. There, seventy percent or more of our native bees are ground nesting bees. Um, and if you extend beyond bees, a lot of the beneficial insects that we want on our farms also rely on undisturbed soil. So that was a that's another key um, practice mm. on a farm. Um, creating new habitat would be kind of the obvious thing. A lot of people just leap to that. But there are a lot of things you can do prior to that. Um, Which I'm okay if they want to plant a, yeah. a wildflower meadow. Like, I think we're Create okay with new that. habitat. Yeah. That's great. I am not trying to um, kind of restrain any of that. No, it's yeah. a really good point, though. You can do yeah. certain things without any immediate uh, like input. Hmm. Yeah, you know? well, and reducing tillage, like you said, that can also increase your bottom line and your productivity. Sure. So you can help build, it can help you build more organic matter. You mm-hmm. can start. You know, a lot shifting. of other reasons to do yeah. that. And so it benefits bees, but then it also benefits your bottom line, which sure. is all the bees that you want in the mix there. <laughs> See what I did there? Bottom line, bees, yeah. all the bees. And then, you know, it has to be said that um, on farms, another really important thing to do after you've conserved, well, not necessarily after, but um, you've conserved habitat, you're reducing tillage, you're creating new habitat. We also need to cr- create spaces that are pesticide-free. Right. So that um, those bees are being protected and it's not a, a sink. You know, you're not creating like a poisonous environment for for bees and other invertebrates. Yeah, we had I had this question the other day, too, where somebody asked me um, if insecticides are bad for bees. And I just kind of looked at them and I said, well, it's an insecticide. It's designed to kill insects. So, Yes. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's what they're designed to do. Mm-hmm. And it's a tool that we have in the toolbox that sometimes we really need in order to um, farm effectively. But there are also other things we can do. Like if we were using less insecticides, maybe we would have more late lady beetles, which then prey on things like soybean aphids. Mm-hmm. So you get kind of you're building in a natural predator like you were talking about earlier to fight the problem for you, mm-hmm. basically. Yes. <laughs> okay, tell us some other things that we can do. I feel like I cut you off. Those are some of the the big ones. I, mean, I could talk about specific conservation practices. If, sure, if that's kind of yeah, what that'd you're interested great. in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and every farm is a little different in, in terms of its landscape context and what makes sense in terms of habitat enhancements. Um, definitely you want to work with within your landscape context and what is kind of called for on your land. So if you live on the kind of prairie forest transition, um, then some practices that involve trees or shrubs are really, um, really called for. I mean, hedgerows, flowering hedgerows, um, even some broadleaf trees are really... um, can be really important for pollinators. Uh, we don't think of them as pollinator plants because we don't see pollinators on them because they're way above us, 60 mm-hmm. feet up, and you don't see those, those huh. spring um, spring emerging bees visiting maple trees, but they're up there using maple pollen. Um, I'm going to look up more now. <laughs> There's so some amazing them, research yeah. coming out about bees and trees. Um, I love it. But so... 
Or, you know, there's, so there's kind of riparian areas. If you live in a riparian quarter, that can be a really great place to enhance with um, like willows. Willows are a really important species for honeybees and native pollinators that there are a lot of specialist uh, bees that require willow pollen. Mm. Uh, so that can be a really important one and really obvious one to do in any kind of wetter areas, corridors, um, even so... We want to encourage putting in habitat that's permanent, uh, a permanent refuge that you can keep kind of enhancing um, from year to year. Uh, but there are some times when habitat can be created on farms that's just an annual um, thing, like a cover crop, a flowering cover crop. Okay. If you just want to cover the soil um, because you're not using that or it's in a certain rotation, putting in something that creates short-term bloom um, but attracts a wild, wide diversity of insects um, can be really important, like buckwheat or even annual sunflowers, or lacy phacelia. Um, there's a whole, even some brassicas, like um, radishes, um, kale, turnips. There's these various things that actually provide a lot of good short-term forage for really a, a broad diversity of bees. It's uh, interesting to hear you mention the shrubs and the woody component as being important for bees and it just kind of adds another emphasis, another justification for woody species. And I think we, we so often think about them in prairie management as something that we have to eradicate. Mm -hmm. and, and some of our work that we're doing with the non-game program, we're finding shrubs play an important role for a lot of different species and trees when it comes, right. to, when it comes to prairie species, what we traditionally think of as prairie species. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to hear that bees are another one that that can benefit from shrubs and trees. Yeah. So we, we want to control them in prairies, but we don't want to eliminate them. And that's why I was trying to emphasize yeah. that the landscape context. Mm -hmm. So knowing what your neighbor's goals are, you know, if you're living next to a really amazing prairie restoration, then you may consider whether or not you want to put in a lot of an entire woody hedgerow um, or large conifers that may have kind of negative consequences for the prairie nearby. Mm -hmm. um, but I, one reason we often suggest flowering shrubs, native flowering shrubs uh, in Minnesota is that the native spring blooming species in prairies tend to be pretty expensive, um, sometimes hard to come by in the native seed industry. Um, and, and flowering shrubs, um, tend to be more available. Uh, so you think of like dogwoods, willows, um, like juneberry, uh, a lot of different species that are easier for a farmer to put in um, without a lot of input costs, can have really a lot of benefit. Mm -hmm. uh, you can put in something that's a little bit more mature if you are trying to fight some weeds, for example. Mm. Um, a, for example, a wet area that's dominated by reed canary grass, they may, that may be a really hard place to get a native seed mix started. Right. Uh, and so putting in flowering shrubs may be a really good way to fill the spring bloom gap, mm. as well as get something established, relatively low cost, still have a lot of benefit uh, for for the bees that pollinate the flower, and then later on, if there are berries associated, obviously that's affecting you know the, the food chain in other ways too. So, not to put too much emphasis on 
flowering shrubs on a prairie no. podcast. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I just, but, right. I mean, we love seeing uh, conservation cover is what the NRCS term is okay. for permanent vegetation that's herbaceous. So we love doing that kind of planting on farms too. So like it can be, it can really, there's a whole spectrum of kind of conservation cover that's just permanent perennial vegetation. It can be cool season grasses, which have relatively low um, wildlife benefit, but it covers mm -hmm. the soil. Or you could have something that's a little bit more just native grasses with a small forb component. Or you could go to the extreme end with something that we call a pollinator planting, which is as much as 75% wildflowers and only 25% grasses. All of those have different benefits. You may want to put those in strategically around your farm landscape if you have specific pollination services you need, if you're trying to attract certain beneficial insects. There's a lot of strategy in designing your farm landscape to have the most kind of um, ecological benefit for the surrounding landscape, but also for your in farm. Yeah, good. I like what you said too about talking to your neighbors and kind of seeing what their goals are, even if your neighbor is the DNR or other public land. But I think that's really important because, you know, we have 1%, 2%, between 1% and 2% of our remnant prairie remaining. And we're trying to, again, get that landscape back in balance. And so, no, I don't think anybody's saying, yes, what we really need to do is just plant shrubs everywhere in the prairie. <laughs> that's, that's not the goal. But it's how can we be best additive so that we're doing good things, but we're also not doing things that would impact our neighbor's land in a negative way. So, yeah. and I mean, I'm a sucker for a dogwood. I do and enjoy them. Communicating with your neighbors really can be the key element. I was at a, a farming conference this winter, and I had a, a farmer ask me, "Are there? do you have a plant list of wildflowers that are resistant to herbicides? Mm. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. he has replanted his prairie multiple times on the edge oh, of his farm, yeah. and he keeps getting drifted on. And... You know, I thought about that and I realized I don't have that list and we're not going to create that list. We're not going to be developing transgenic prairie species Bionic. that can <laughs> resist herbicides. Uh, instead, really, probably the solution for this particular case is to talk to that neighbor and really develop some strategy so that he's not going to keep throwing money at a problem that's going to continue to be there. Yeah, right. Good example. We, that is a great example. We usually recommend that as well, having that conversation, although those can be hard conversations. To have. Definitely. So tell us a little bit. Um, I want to transition here because we're talking about all these things that you can individually do on your farm. And I want to talk a little bit about crop production in Minnesota as a whole. So what we grow here, because usually what we hear is we hear all of these terms, right, that bees contribute $3 billion, or pollinators contribute $3 billion to the global food industry. And then the immediate follow-up question I get from folks is, but wait a minute, don't we grow corn and soybeans in Minnesota and isn't corn wind pollinated and soybeans just get the small yield bump? So I want to know a little bit your perspective about how is crop pollination working in Minnesota? And then how does that translate to our diet and the foods that we eat? And what are the benefits? Give us the real, real here. I want to know it. <laughs> well, as you mentioned, yes, our major crops here in Minnesota are, are wind pollinated or at least not dependent on pollinators. There's evidence of bees visiting corn and collecting some pollen 
more anecdotal evidence for like sweet corn. Um, it's certainly not affecting corn yields. It's just kind of a side thing when there's a kind of desert and there's no food and some bees will even turn to corn mm. pollen. Okay. Uh, soybeans can attract some pollinators because it offers nectar. So research out of Iowa State has shown that soybeans can even attract up to 40 or 50 different species of wild bees. Mm. So that is not to say that planting corn or corn and soybeans is a conservation strategy <laughs> for pollinators, uh, but they can come to visit when there isn't other habitat available. There was, there was a documented, like you said, a documented bump in yield in soybeans due to pollination. Is that, that may be or, true. Or that? I would, again, be cautious, though, given that a lot of our soybeans are treated with systemic insecticides, mm, point. which yeah. can, it still may attract the bees to the flower, uh, but that flower may be offering essentially toxic nectar. So uh, it could still be creating a yield bump, but it certainly isn't good for the bees. Helping the bees. bees. Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, a lot of our, our landscape is dominated by crops that don't require pollinators. Uh, but a lot of our most nutritious and interesting foods are dependent on pollinators. So anything, if you're like me, uh, if you like a colorful diet with strawberries and blueberries and apples and broccoli and squash and pumpkins and coffee and chocolate <laughs> and oils. These are all Coffee things. and chocolate. You could have said, you could have stopped right Started there. Started there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Enough said. Right. All of these, even if we're importing them from other places, we need healthy bee populations in those areas. Uh, we need healthy bee populations everywhere, frankly. Uh, but we need to care about pollinator conservation if we want to eat any of those foods. And furthermore, if you want some of those foods to be produced locally, then we need our native pollinators, who some of our native pollinators are specialists on our crops. The classic example is the native squash bee that is really mm. the best pollinator of um, pumpkins and squash plants. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, we... <laughs> I would like to have more of those things in our diet and in our cropping systems here in Minnesota. Well, I just think like every Friday night, oh, see, I'm calling myself out here, but like is pizza night or I would love it to be pizza night. <laughs> Probably the, as Mike said, like as I get older, I'm getting bigger or something like so maybe I shouldn't have Wait, pizza night every I didn't Friday. Say that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you said that. I did but, not. So, Tomatoes. Okay, I'm bringing this back. Tomatoes are buzz pollinated by bumblebees. That would be right. which you know my pizza has sauce on it. So there's lots of connections to the whole food that we eat too. That's contributing to a delicious meal like pizza. And I just because we mentioned um, chocolate, I want to just say that you know that's pollinated by a fly. So like you said, we need all pollinators. And I know right. that that always trips people up because they're like, now I have to care about flies too. <laughs> You're telling me I have to care about flies, but yes, yes, you do. <laughs> well, I think one really cool thing about flies and fly conservation is that they're doing multiple services for us sometimes. So, yeah, I know. I'm going to lift up flies. Here we go. <laughs> quick quick flies shout out for flies. <laughs> can be a crop pollinator, like for chocolate. And then at the other parts of its life, its larval stage, they may be really important natural enemies for our crop pests. Mm. 
Whereas bees, they're just pollinating our flowers and then doing that's other all, that's work all on the side. Oh that's all they're You're getting doing. multiple you services know. out of certain flies. So I would definitely well, I think of flies when you think about you, invertebrate you know, on conservation. This podcast, we like to lift flies up without bringing bees down. I'm just not <laughs> sure that that was a cheat. And to continue on that theme, when I'm in the prairie taking photographs of insects on flowers, I, I probably see a 20 flies for every bee I see on on flowers. Yeah, I feel like this is going down a real bad road because, you know, <laughs> bees are super important. I feel like we're throwing them a little bit of shade and I'm just not appreciative of it. So I'm going to bring us back onto the rails here because <laughs> we're, we're shade. So okay. what, okay, so in summary, what I'm hearing you say is that our pollinators in Minnesota and our bees specifically, they may not be super important for our largest commercial crops in terms of pollination, but they're super important for the whole system of our farm in terms of what they're providing it from not just aesthetics, but also from predation and managing the cycle there, keeping our habit. Oh, hello, we all like drink water and breathe air. So they're certainly providing pollination services for all the plants in that right. environment. Well, not all of them. I shouldn't say all, but a lot of the plants in that environment, yeah. which contributes to our clean air. So they're doing other things that contribute on the farm, if not necessarily for that very specific role of pollination. Right. And I think the case that can sometimes be more compelling for farmers is we may design conservation programs under the title of pollinators like a, a monarch habitat planting or a bee pollinator planting, which indeed benefits those species. But it's also bringing along all these other beneficial insects that mm. can really serve those crop farmers who are growing something that isn't doesn't require a pollinator. But you're bringing all these other invertebrates along that can provide really important services. Like less than 2% of all invertebrates in the world are pests. The rest are doing something beneficial That's for us. That's a great fact. Mm. I love that. Right. And so that, I think, is a more inherently compelling reason to put in habitat for a farmer who's not necessarily growing something that is pollinator dependent. I used to say insects make the world grow round. I think I'm going to change it and fancy it up and say invertebrates make the world grow round because we learned about mussels. And, you oh, know, yeah. they're in that class. And so they're basically making the whole stream system work. And then our insects on land are making it work. So I think I'm just going to broaden it and say invertebrates make the world go wrong. You know, there's actually, uh, you should put in the, in the show notes this paper from E.O. Wilson, uh, The Little Things That Run the World. Mm. It's one of the first kind of calls for invertebrate conservation. Mm. Uh, that these are... When we think about wildlife conservation, a lot of us think about some kind of vertebrate animal, a tropical tree frog, a bird, a panda. Sure. Uh, but they are such a small sliver of our animal biodiversity out there. So if we want to be thinking about wildlife conservation, we need to start conjuring up images of insects. And another benefit, I think it's just important to point out, and Megan, you said, well, both of you said 450 species and counting in the state. So, yeah, we have these values like pollination benefits. We, ha we also have these other values that are less, uh, they're diff more difficult to define or quantify. And here we're talking about uh, you know, the, the research on these, on these animals and, and just the, the ways that they enrich our habitat, enrich our experience outdoors. 
these are things that are difficult to quantify and that we don't really understand yet. We're just now learning how many species are in this state. Oh, so you're talking about how we don't fully know all the roles that they're playing. Yes. In the ecosystem. Yeah, I'm talking about that. And also, you know, this idea of wonder, uh, this idea of, of uh, that we, you know, we, don't, we don't know what, what these species are that are out there. And so it's, it's a real shame if we're losing species and we haven't even documented them yet. Or begun to understand or begun to their understand role. Them. I know this is real deep. It got real deep. But first, I'm with you totally. <laughs> I mean, I'm with you too. I just at first when you said they're providing benefits that are hard to quantify, I got confused because I was like, well, many of the benefits are easy to quantify, like the amount of soil erosion that's being trapped by the plants that they're pollinating, that's then holding that soil in place, sure. like the clean water, you know, trapping of nutrient sediments, all of these types of things. Um, Weed seed reduction, filtering nutrients and pesticides. Like, I was thinking along a very, I don't know, black and white, <laughs> like, quantification. Well, and we should focus a lot on those. Benefits. And then when you yeah. were in the wonder, I'm sad to say I wasn't there yet with you along your train of thought. Now I am. Now I'm with you. But yeah, at first I, just, I was thinking of those very quantifiable things. I just, I think as conservationists, we, we can't get away from those benefits. Um, and sometimes we do. We focus on the very quantifiable uh, benefits that are related to, you know, food or uh, whatever that's that we require. And okay. services to us. It's Ser- a really right. kind of like human-oriented yeah. reason for the conservation. Yeah, how are they here for me? Like, right. what are they doing for me? <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's okay to have that perspective. That's a natural thing to do, of course. But sometimes what they're doing for us what is, is not uh, quantified as food output. Sometimes what they're doing for us is enriching our lives in a way that it's, that's hard to quantify. Totally. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. the natural areas that are most awe-inspiring to me that kind of take my breath away are sustained by pollinators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and they are clearly still teaching us lessons about how these environments work. And Yeah, it's yeah. well put. Yep. I'm fascinated by them. Like, I haven't stopped being fascinated by them. Like, bees just, I don't know. They're adorable, and they're they're doing so many things, and they come in so many sizes, shapes, and colors, and I just, I could talk about them all day. But I think we have to move to our next section. Indeed. Let's science! To the literature! Science! All right. So, we've been talking about some of the wonder and now I think we need to talk about some of the science which certainly could capture some of that wonder but like always this is a part of podcast we're going to recommend a book a blog or a paper or in this case many things so that you can enhance your knowledge about bees because certainly we're not going to be able to cover all of it in 45 minutes um so I want to start with this Baron paper um She's an entomologist, and Jess Peterson sent this to me because I always ask her to fact check all of my presentations before I give them about pollinators, just to make sure that I'm spreading truth out there about what's going on with our bees and what's really happening. So this paper is called Reality Bites, and it was published in the American Entomologist in 2018. I'm still not used to saying, I want to say last, the year before or last year. I'm still not like fully in 2020. I'm going to work on it. I understood. Yeah, we're, we're halfway through and I'm still not fully in it. <laughs> I need to jump into the decade soon. <laughs> so 
the what I like about this paper is she's basically debunking the myth where uh, we use this phrase a lot, one in three bites of food, that bees, or in some cases we say pollinators in general, are responsible for every one in three bites of food. And so what she's actually saying is that this was a misquote from other papers, and it largely depends on what you're eating, right? Like how much bees or other pollinators are contributing to your diet. So the real paper was in 1976, and what they concluded was that possibly one-third of our diet is because of animal or insect pollination. Well, again, so if you're an American, (laughs) here's pop quiz time. (laughs) She also says this in the article. What's the number one vegetable that you think we're eating? And it's not corn. It's not corn. It's not. Think about, like... Going McDonald's? Their, yeah. I was going to say, think Golden Arches, think McDonald's. What are you eating? French fries. Potatoes! Yeah. You're on it, Mike. So the number one vegetable they eat are potatoes, which, of course, do not require a pollinator. And then the number one fruit that we're eating are bananas, which are grown as kind of like propagated from sterile pods. So it's kind of depressing <laughs> when you're reading this because it's like, oh... If the majority of the American diet is potatoes and bananas, that's not really saying a whole lot. Of course, like Karen mentioned, everybody's eating different things. Like, that's not going to be true. For me, I eat mostly a fruit and vegetable diet. So, my well, Karen, diet. what was the story you had about a friend, a co- yeah. colleague? <laughs> a co-worker of mine. I'm not going to take any credit for this game. She developed it, and I just think it's genius. She and her family and friends have developed this game where they try to integrate as many different plant families into their meal as possible. So like their holiday meal. For example, you could you could get really into this game and do it for every meal. And have a whole database. <laughs> Mike and I should do this for like a whole this should But be it was really amazing. So she this Chris or this uh, last Thanksgiving, without even trying, they added up forty different plant families hmm. that they were eating at their wow. meal. And then they got really competitive about it and decided to set a goal for next year to have two hundred different plant families represented. <laughs> which is amazing. That you is know amazing. you and I, Megan, often Think about adding a lot of plant family diversity to a seed mix because ecosystems need this diversity for their health. Well, so do we. I mean, if you think about all the different culinary herbs and, I mean, this is the way that we could be really changing farming landscapes if we were regarding our food in this way and thinking about trying to consume a lot of different a lot of different plants, a lot of diversity. And inevitably, some of those would be pollinator dependent and therefore have trickle-down effects on farms where we'd have farms that really need to support their native pollinators. I mean, it's an amazing game. And if we were all thinking like this, it would be so fun. It should be a social media competition. I'm okay? also glad that you brought up the word diversity in this context. I'm a little jealous that I didn't say it first, but <laughs> but I'm really glad that you did because you're right. Like Diversity is super important. On a remnant prairie, it's very important when we're trying to recreate that landscape, which we're not close to yet. And then, of course, it's going to be important with what we eat and put into our bodies, too. I just didn't, wow. I need to, uh, right now, I'm like tallying everything that I ate for Thanksgiving, and I'm trying to see where I'm at. I don't think I'm anywhere close to 200, so I maybe need to reevaluate like what's in my meal. Mike did say I had the best stuffing that he's ever ever eaten which did have plants in it (laughs) (laughs) 
I think four different kinds of plants. Congrats, man. So I'm already, all right, game on. We're going to do this. It's going to be a great competition. Mm-hmm. All right, Karen, give me your uh, couple picks from you here. Okay, the first one is not a blog, a paper, <laughs> or a book. It's a tool that I really love. And actually, it's a it's sort of a summary of a whole bunch of research, including uh, peer-reviewed research. Uh, it is called the Eco-Regional Revegetation Application. Kind of a mouthful. It was developed by the uh, Federal Highway Administration. And what it does is pool together all these plant databases from across the country and pull extracted a bunch of information from insect museums and um, bug guide and a lot of different papers to basically connect which plants are supporting which pollinators. Uh, And so basically this is a tool that you can use. You can download uh, plant lists for your region it's, an, it's exhaustive, too. It has every plant that occurs in your area. And for every plant, it also lists uh, various fields, kind of characters about that plant species, whether or not uh, it tolerates salt in the soil, whether it tolerates shade. Um, there, I mean, it's like exhaustive number of characters that it, I it quantifies. Tool. I checked it out this morning, and I was impressed. It's yeah. really pretty neat. And if you're kind of a, an Excel junkie even better (laughs) because you can filter all these different Mm -hmm. fields and really put together a list that is maximizing pollinator value it even has a field that's called workhorse pollinator plants these are species (laughs) that are commercially available known to be hardy uh also have like a lot of records that it's that it's supporting a lot of different pollinator species and this isn't just honeybees but it's it you can even filter out which ones are best for honeybees which ones are best for bumblebees it lists all these different moth species that plants support so it is really quite a a tool for nerds who like to design scene mixes (laughs) my Uh, afternoon is full (laughs) i better clear all of my appointments (laughs) it's a relatively new tool and and i think a lot of um land managers aren't aware of it yet so and it really does incorporate a lot of research so uh, that's one to to check out and play around with. It's yeah, great. spend some time with that. Uh, the eco regional revegetation application. Yeah, okay. we'll put the link up. Yeah. On there. <laughs> All right, good. Um, and two other books that I, I guess I'd like to highlight. One is called Attracting Native Pollinators: uh, Protecting North America's Bees and Butterflies. Uh, these are this is a book that the Xerces Society published, and it's getting it's about nine years old now, but it really was my first inspiration to get into this field. <laughs> you know, I it's kind of covers the basics of pollinator conservation and how this work can be um, done on private land, on farms, integrating in a working way. So um, we're really collaborating with nature. It shows kind of how to install habitat, selects different species. It kind of gives a high-level overview of some of our native um, bees. It's it has a lot of beautiful pictures um, and a lot of examples of how pollinator habitat looks, what it can look like on farms. So a lot of pictures for you to, photos for you to kind of imagine how it could be incorporated yeah. onto your own farm. And then a companion book to that is another book that the Xerxes Society published, Farming with Native Beneficial Insects. 
And again, I think, you know, the, the case for beneficial insects can be sometimes more compelling for certain farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the habitat can often look really similar. Uh, so whether or not you're doing it for the beneficial insects or the pollinators, you may be having pretty much the same effect. But the there are some unique strategies for particular native beneficial insects in this other book. Um, and that also goes over kind of the high-level overview of some of the predators, the parasitoids, um, beneficial insects that we maybe aren't even looking at and seeing as as farming partners. So I would point you towards those two books. There's a lot of references in those books to other literature for you to kind of delve deeper. But those are I like that. And there's also a fact sheet that you guys put out or a fact sheet four-page document, I don't know what you want to call it, Farming for Bees. So if you feel like you can't just read a whole book and it really seems daunting, you can read this fact sheet. I empower you. Mike and I empower you. You can do it. (laughs) The Xerxes Society really puts in a lot of effort to develop publications that are beautiful and useful and research-based and that will help you succeed with your restoration plantings. I have all of these books. And I love them. <laughs> the only and and I should note that the only two that actually cost money are these two books that I highlighted. But we have hundreds of other resources on our website in our publication library, all downloadable for free as PDFs that you can widely distribute. So definitely check that out too. They're really great. My goal, um, I think, in 2018 was to read one chapter of the Attracting Native Pollinators book. Oh, it got five chapters in, so I felt like that was a really successful year for me before <laughs> I had to do other things. But each one was very good, and I really enjoyed it. Hey, Megan. Yeah, Mike? Why don't you take a hike? Let's all hike together, and let's look for some bees while we're doing <laughs> I'm it. Game. I'm game. So we love to start with our guest for this Um Karen, we like to go hiking. We like to explore our public lands. We certainly are exploring prairie. Give us your pick for where we're going today. <laughs> um, I really want to go hike at Fred- Frenchman's Bluff SNA. It's up by Monoman in northwestern Minnesota. And the reason I chose this is that I stumbled upon this site a few years ago, and it was late in the season, like in October. And I just happened to spend an hour exploring the area. And most of the plant community was senesced. So most of the flowers were in seed form. Um, and But I could already tell, even, even though it was sort of a quiet time on the prairie, so to speak, there was so much diversity there. There, uh, The understory, it just had, it was a carpet of, a nice. prairie smoke, mm. Otrichium, moonwort there. Oh, my gosh. Um, it's up on the hill. It's one of the highest points in northwestern Minnesota. It has this beautiful composition of just small bunch grasses. And in between those spaces are all, it's really vast um, wildflower diversity and really conservative plants in abundance. And um, I vowed to go back there someday during the growing season so I could see who was visiting all those plants. Uh, and so that is where I want to go hike today. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mike? Uh, Santee Scientific and Natural Area, uh, it's a complex. It, it's it, it's attached to Wombach, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I don't think I've ever heard it pronounced, but Wombach Wildlife Management Area. It forms a nice, big, contiguous uh, chunk of prairie. 
uh, it's special for me because I think it was the first place in Minnesota where I heard a prairie chicken. Oh. Uh, yeah, so it's but it, when I my former position with the DNR was uh, long term prairie monitoring or what we call SPICE and um, the acronym SPICE and it's a great acronym, Megan. Oh yeah, we're gonna talk about that in a future episode. Good. Um, Next time. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, that was a site we went to every year for monitoring, so I became pretty familiar with it, and it's it's a gorgeous area with a lot of really interesting wildlife. I never actually did a pollinator survey there, but I think it's probably very good for pollinators. Did you ever go there for bee surveys? I did. Karen? You yeah, did? Good. I love that site. Okay, good. I like it too. Let's go. See, there you go. Stamp of approval. Well, I am feeling pretty lazy today, so I'm going to take us to a place to hike, which is just really right in my backyard. Here exotic in location. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, exotic New Ulm. <laughs> what is it? T- t- we uh, are two miles go, away from us right now, probably? Yeah, ish. Yeah. yeah. We're going to hike to Flandreau State Park. And I know that this is a state park that I feel like people kind of overlook sometimes because we had a regional meeting once and everybody went around and they mentioned their favorite natural area. And a lot of people said Flandreau, but then when they said the reason why, it was for the sand bottom swimming pool that's there. And that's actually not my favorite feature. One, because you can see a lot of coworkers there in swimsuits, which is just not a bust. <laughs> and then two, it's just, there's a lot of people there. And when I go to a state park, like, I want to go to the parts of it where I feel like I can really explore and it's just me. And so my favorite part, is they have this beautiful overlook trail that goes up. They do have remnant prairie. They have a whole mosaic. Um, it definitely is wooded in parts of it. Um, but it's this nice complex. It's got some terrain. And when you go up this overlook trail, Parks and Trails is doing a really nice job of restoring the prairie there, removing some of the invasive plants. And there's this beautiful Baroque savanna that they're working on. And sometimes I'm like the, the weird person that's there like trimming invasive species in the middle of that trail. It's not weird. Well, it's very soothing, but I really feel like I should probably check in with park staff before I'm just (laughs) (laughs) there weeding as like a rogue ecologist. But it it feels really nice. The trail overlooks the Cottonwood River, so you get those really great river bluffs, which just, I don't know, it speaks to me. And then there's some hillside prairies there that are in the process of being restored. So Parks and Trails is really doing a lot of good work. They have goats there as a management strategy because we have a lot of invasive species there that we need to deal with. But there's also really nice habitat there, too. And I like it because it's right in my backyard, and I feel very fortunate that I can go there. I can go there in any season. They have some of the best groomed cross-country ski trails, so it's really nice. But just another another example that you don't have to go very far to, to prairie, as you say, reuse prairie as a verb. I know, to prairie. I'm going to prairie now. (laughs) It's just, I feel like in Minnesota, sometimes we might take this for granted, but we're really blessed with a vast amount of public lands. And that's all because of people working together to make that happen. So they might be managed by the DNR. They might be managed by the Nature Conservancy, Pheasants Forever, whomever. Um, But we're in partnership doing that that work so that we can provide these opportunities to prairie. I like it. I like it. Oh, my gosh. So don't forget to check out the DNR Recreation Compass so you can find more of your amazing public lands. I actually used it today to think about what my pick was going to be. So even I, I use yeah. that compass all the time. So next week, and Mike already gave you a teaser, we're going to be talking on Prairie Tuesday, giving you an insight into spice, 
like Mike mentioned, where the prairie is going to get a health checkup. That's right. Prairies get physicals too. Physical. Okay. Um, turns out there's a whole team of scientists that are invested in assessing the health of Minnesota's prairies. So we're going to talk about the grassland monitoring team. And then we're also going to talk about their larger work as this SPICE acronym that Mike keeps trying to push on to me. So he just wants my life to You'll come around. You'll come around. <laughs> Someday. You know, next podcast, you guys are going to convince me. I'm going to embrace it. I can already feel that. Me too. I'll be convinced. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's going to happen. Oh, this episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership. It was edited by Dan Ryder and engineered by Jed Beecher. As always, you can find all the resources we talked about today on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. Karen, thank you so much. Yep, thanks so much. <laughs> My sure. pleasure. Thank this you was for great. having me. It was a really good conversation. I, know. I feel yeah. like we should end it with like a yay bees or something. <laughs> Karen's like, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> I'm all for saying yay bees. <laughs> okay, ready? We'll do it. One, two, three. Yay, yay bees! bees. <laughs> Mike is so manly.